Hello and welcome to 5 at 8. I'm Mark Overman and joining me today is Linda Carlisle. It's Wednesday, August 9th, 2023, and we have some great stories for you. In this episode, we will talk about the news of the day. Moscow's mayor announced the shooting down of armed drones heading towards Moscow. Ukraine claims to have stopped a Russian hacking attempt. WeWork expresses doubts about its ability to remain in business. China's consumer prices have fallen for the first time in over two years. And Italy imposes a one-off 40% tax on bank profits. Stay tuned for all the details. Story number one. Moscow's mayor, Sergei Sobyanin, announced that Russian air defenses have shot down two armed drones that were heading towards Moscow, as reported by Al Jazeera. The first drone was downed in the Domodedovo area, while the second was shot down in the Minsk highway area. The mayor did not name the attacker responsible for the drones. The Russian defense ministry stated that Ukrainian drones were destroyed in an attempt to attack Moscow. This is the third attempted drone attack on Moscow within a week, with previous incidents occurring in the Podolsky district and near the Kaluga region. Moscow has recently become a target for drones launched from Ukraine, prompting Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to warn of an impending war with Russia. Good day, folks. We have a bit of a situation brewing overseas, don't we, Linda? Looks like Russian air defenses had a bit of a workout, shooting down two armed drones headed for Moscow. The city's mayor, Sergei Sobyanin, mentioned this was the third such incident in just a week. Quite the uptick, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. This is indeed concerning. The use of armed drones in international conflicts seems to be escalating rapidly. These drones, they have this distinct advantage of being able to bypass conventional defenses, not to mention they are relatively inexpensive compared to manned aircraft, and their use could potentially be denied, which makes them, I would say, an attractive choice for many parties involved in conflicts. I see what you mean, Linda, and it certainly brings up a fair point. These drones, they're not just changing the way battles are fought, but they're also changing the landscape of international relations raises the question, how should countries respond to this? Are our defense strategies keeping up with this technology? That's an important question, Mark. And to be honest, it's not an easy one to answer. The technology is advancing at a rapid pace, and it does pose a unique set of challenges. Traditional air defenses may not be sufficient, and there is a need for more sophisticated countermeasures. Moreover, there's also a need for international laws to catch up with these developments, to regulate the use of such technology in warfare. And it's not just the big players either. I mean, we've seen drones being used by non-state actors like ISIS. Heck, they even played a decisive role in the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. So it seems like we're in a bit of an arms race here, where the drone is the new weapon of choice. What do you think this means for global security? Well, Mark, it certainly does raise concerns. The increasing use of drones in warfare can lead to conflicts escalating rapidly and unpredictably. And as you rightly pointed out, it's not just states that have access to this technology, but non-state actors too. This could potentially lead to a more volatile and dangerous world. It's a complex issue, and one that needs urgent attention from policymakers worldwide. Story number two. According to The Guardian, Ukraine claims to have stopped a Russian hacking attempt on its combat information system. The Ukrainian Security Service, SBU, said that hackers tried to access sensitive information on the actions and movements of the Ukrainian armed forces. The hackers planned to use Ukrainian military tablets to spread viruses in the battle system. Russia has denied these accusations, but Ukraine has reported an increase in Russian hacking attempts since the start of the Russian invasion in February 2022. 
It's quite worrying, isn't it, Linda? This whole business of Russian hackers attempting to infiltrate the Ukrainian armed forces' battle systems. With cyber warfare becoming such a major component of modern conflict, you gotta wonder how ready we are for these kinds of attacks. It's a paradigm shift that forces us to rethink our traditional conceptions of warfare. Unlike conventional warfare, cyber warfare doesn't have any physical boundaries. Attackers can be thousands of miles away and still cause significant damage to a nation's infrastructure. That's some scary stuff, Linda. But how do these hackers even get access to such critical systems? I mean, you'd think they'd be under lock and key, right? That's a valid point, Mark. However, it's important to understand that no system is completely foolproof. Hackers often exploit vulnerabilities in software systems. For example, in this case, the hackers plan to use Ukrainian military tablets to spread viruses in the battle system. Also, we need to remember that the more interconnected our systems become, the more potential points of entry we create for these cyber attackers. Right, right. That makes sense, Linda. You know, this kind of reminds me of that 2020 SolarWinds cyber attack. I wonder, how do countries usually respond to these kinds of threats? There's got to be some kind of strategy in place, right? Yes, Mark. There are indeed strategies in place. Typically, nations respond to such threats by enhancing their cyber defense capabilities. This can include measures like regular system audits, vulnerability testing, and developing advanced cybersecurity tools. But it's not just about defense. It's also about building resilience so that systems can recover quickly even if they are compromised. Gotcha, Linda. Now this might sound a bit offbeat, but how does international law even play into this? I mean, there's no physical territory being invaded here, so how do the usual rules of conflict apply? That's an insightful question, Mark. The application of international law to cyber warfare is indeed a complex issue. Current legal frameworks were not designed with cyber warfare in mind, so there is a degree of ambiguity. However, experts generally agree that principles like sovereignty and non-intervention still apply. For instance, a cyber attack that causes significant harm could be considered a breach of a nation's sovereignty. But there's still much debate and many unresolved issues in this area. Story number three. Workspace sharing company WeWork, as reported by Al Jazeera, has expressed doubts about its ability to remain in business due to significant losses and a lack of cash. The company's future hinges on its ability to boost liquidity and profitability in the next year. WeWork's shares plummeted by 27% following this announcement. The company has struggled in the tech sector and has not turned a profit since going public in 2021. WeWork has faced further challenges with the departure of top executives and has taken steps to reduce its debt and preserve cash. Despite losses of $349 million in the second quarter, interim CEO David Tolley remains optimistic about the company's transformation and focus on member retention and growth. Will you look at WeWork, Linda? It's a classic example of a tech unicorn struggling to maintain its sky-high valuation. These companies, they get billions pumped into them. And then they're expected to churn out profits like a well-oiled machine. It's not always that simple, especially in a sector as volatile as tech. They're in a high-risk environment where innovation and disruption can change the game overnight. And they're not just dealing with financial pressures. There's the human element, too. WeWork's leadership has faced serious scrutiny, and there's been a lot of executive turnover. It's hard to steer a ship in stormy waters when the captain keeps changing. I mean, when Adam Newman was at the helm, his eccentric style and spending habits definitely ruffled some feathers. But even with new leadership, they're still in hot water. 
just goes to show that it's not just about having a charismatic leader. It's about having a sound business model and a clear path to profitability. Right. And perhaps that's where WeWork may have missed the mark. Their business model, while innovative, was flawed in some ways. Renting out office space long-term and then leasing it short-term. It works when the economy is booming, but it's vulnerable to market downturns. And we've seen plenty of those lately, with the tech sector layoffs and the pandemic. Oh, for sure. But hey, they're not going down without a fight. Interim CEO David Tolley seems to be taking a disciplined approach to reducing costs and optimizing their real estate portfolio. Let's see if they can turn this ship around. Indeed, it'll be interesting to watch. But it's not just about WeWork, Mark. It's about the broader trend in the tech industry. The dot-com bubble burst in the 2000s, and now we're seeing similar struggles with other tech unicorns like Uber and Lyft. The question is, are these just growing pains, or is the unicorn business model fundamentally unsustainable? Story number four. China's consumer prices have fallen for the first time in over two years, with the consumer price index declining by 0.3% in July, as reported by Al Jazeera. This deflation is a result of slowing spending, which is hampering the country's post-pandemic economic recovery. The drop in prices is seen as a negative sign, as it typically leads to reduced consumer spending, lower production, and potential job losses. China's economy has been facing weakening demand both domestically and internationally, despite a swift rebound from COVID-19. The government has implemented various policy measures to support the economy, but further fiscal stimulus may be needed to address the challenge posed by deflation. I'll tell you, Linda, this deflation in China has got me thinking about how it could impact their economy. Now, China has been one of the fastest-growing economies for years, but this could be a serious hiccup. Deflation, as we know, can lead to reduced consumer spending and decreased production. This, in turn, could lead to layoffs and salary cuts. Not exactly a pretty picture. Definitely, Mark. And it's not just about the immediate economic impacts. A slowdown in China's economy could have far-reaching effects, considering its position as the world's second-largest economy. But what's interesting here is how the Chinese government is responding. They've announced several policy measures to bolster the economy and are expected to roll out more in the coming weeks. Right you are, Linda. It's clear that Beijing isn't taking this lying down. They're looking to provide more support for private enterprises, which I think is a solid move. But as Zhu Wei Zhang, the chief economist at Pinpoint Asset Management, pointed out, it's not clear if these policies can quickly turn around the economic momentum. Deflation could put more pressure on the government to consider additional fiscal stimulus. Yes, and this isn't the first time a major economy has experienced deflation. We've seen it in Japan in the 1990s and the Eurozone in the early 2010s. The strategies implemented to combat deflation in these economies varied with differing levels of success. It's going to be interesting to see how China's strategies compare and what the outcomes will be. Absolutely. And let's not forget the implications this could have on international trade and global economic dynamics. China's a major player in the global market, after all. If persistent deflation leads to a significant slowdown, it could disrupt supply chains, impact global trade, and potentially even influence economic policies worldwide. That is certainly a possibility, Mark. And it's not just about the economic aspects. The social implications are significant, too. Reduced consumer spending can lower the standard of living for many people. It's a complex issue with many facets, one that requires a comprehensive, multi-pronged approach to address. 
Story number five. Italy has announced a surprise move to impose a one-off 40% tax on profits made by banks from higher interest rates, as reported by Al Jazeera. The decision comes after banks have seen record profits due to the soaring cost of loans. The Italian government has criticized lenders for failing to reward deposits. Other countries, including Spain and Hungary, have already implemented windfall taxes on the banking sector, and more countries may follow suit. The news caused European bank shares to plummet, with Italy's two largest lenders, Intesa San Paolo and Unicredit, experiencing significant losses. The tax is expected to reduce Italian banks' 2023 earnings by up to 12%. The government estimates it will collect less than 3 billion euros, 3.3 billion dollars, from the tax. The measure will be applied in 2023, with banks required to pay the sums by June 30, 2024. The tax will target the net interest margin, NIM, which is the income derived from the difference between lending and deposit rates. Did you catch that bit about the Italian government slapping a 40% tax on profits from higher interest rates? It's a hefty chunk, no doubt about it. Seems like they're trying to punish banks for what they're calling unfair behavior. Yes, it's quite a significant move. The government seems to be sending a clear message that it will not tolerate banks profiting excessively from higher interest rates at the expense of ordinary people and businesses. This action underlines the tension between the financial sector's pursuit of profits and societal expectations about fairness and responsible behavior. Right, right. But we've seen similar steps from Spain and Hungary, right? They've also imposed windfall taxes on their banks. What's the global picture here, Linda? Are we looking at a trend? It's hard to say, Mark. Each country has its own specific circumstances and policy priorities. However, as income inequality becomes a more prominent issue globally, we may see more governments taking similar steps. The key will be to strike a balance that promotes fairness without stifling innovation or growth in the banking sector. Striking a balance, that's easier said than done. But let's talk potential impacts, Linda. How might this move affect the stability of financial markets, especially in Europe? Well, the immediate impact was a drop in European bank shares. And as Gilles Guibault from AXA Investment Managers pointed out, these government interventions don't necessarily help provide stability or lower the risk premium attached to the eurozone. If banks' profits are significantly impacted, it could affect their ability to lend, which could in turn have implications for economies across Europe. Right, right. And what about globally? Could we see this ripple out beyond Europe? It's possible, Mark. Global financial markets are interconnected. So a significant shift in one region could potentially have knock-on effects elsewhere. However, it's also important to remember that different countries have different regulatory frameworks and banking cultures. So, the impact may not be uniform across the globe. That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by Artificial Intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.